0: You're listening to Weird Medicine with Dr. Steve on the Riotcast Network, Riotcast.com. I've
1: got diphtheria crushing my esophagus. I've got Ebola dripping from my nose. I've got the leprosy of the heart valve exacerbating my incredible woes. I want to take my brain out and blast it with the wave, an ultrasonic, echographic, and a pulsating shave. I want a magic pill for all my ailments, the health equivalent to Citizen Kane. And if I don't get it now in the tablet, I think I'm doomed and I'll have to go insane. I want a requiem for my disease,
2: so I'm paging Dr. Steve. Dr. Steve.
1: Dr. Steve. Hello, Steve. It's Weird Medicine, the first and still only uncensored medical show in the history of broadcast radio, now a podcast. I'm Dr. Steve with my little pal, Lady Diagnosis, she who will do most anything for a glass of expensive wine. Hello, Lady Diagnosis.
2: Hello, Dr. Steve.
1: And we have, uh, again, the man who would know more than anyone what she will do for a glass of expensive wine. It is Dr. X, everyone. Hello, Dr. X. Hey, Steve. This is Lady Diagnosis' boyfriend. I guess that's what yeah, you are, <laughs> this is a paramore. <laughs> or <paramour. laughs> This is a show for people who would never listen to a medical show on the radio or the internet. If you have a question you're embarrassed to take to your regular medical provider if you can't find an answer anywhere else, give us a call at 347-766-4323. That's 347
2: Poohhead.
1: If you're listening to us live, the number is 754-227-3647. That's 754 take it away, Dr. X. Hey, uh... 22
2: penis. 102 uh, penis.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or 754 bare, bare nip. Follow us on Twitter at Weird Medicine, Lady Diagnosis, or Dr. Scott WM. Visit our website at weirdmedicine.com for podcasts, medical news, and stuff you can buy, or go to our merchandise store at Weird weirdmedicine. Most importantly, we are not your medical providers. Take everything you hear with a grain of salt. Don't act on anything you hear on this show without talking it over with your doctor, nurse practitioner, physician assistant, pharmacist, chiropractor, acupuncturist, anesthesiologist, yoga master, physical therapist, barista or whatever.
2: Veterinarian.
1: I, oh, dang you. You <clears throat> always I stole your joke and then you just added another one on top of it. In comedy, that's called tagging Lady Diagnosis.
2: Oh, did you just tag me, Dr. Steve? No,
1: you just tagged me. Oh, I
2: tagged you. Yay. (laughs) All
1: right. (laughs) Hey, uh, don't forget to go to stuff.drsteve.com. We had a very interesting new product that we reviewed last time. That looks really interesting. I still haven't received mine because we're recording this on the same day, but I'm hoping it will come next week and I'll be able to talk to you about it. Uh, also, tweakedaudio.com. Offer code FLUID for 33% off the best earbuds for the price on the market and the best customer service anywhere. And they are a they Tennessee. They really are great. They're a Tennessee company. We've got mm-hmm. to go see them. They're in I Franklin.
2: Know. I know. Let's go.
1: Okay. All we'll right. We'll do a, uh, uh, a weird medicine road trip. Are you in, Dr. X? Absolutely. Okay, we have to go to Nashville. That's where Franklin is, right? It's where, where Vanderbilt is, yeah, by yeah, the way. Yeah. Okay, yeah, very good.
2: Vanderbilt is that a, a restaurant?
1: Uh, no lady die it's the uh the true black and gold not that place in Iowa. Uh, oh the oh god. Here we go. I don't give a shit. Um simplyherbs.net is Dr. Scott's uh, Dr. Scott's uh herbal website. Herbals. And uh he has oh this stuff, you know, you, the nose spray. Oh. Dr. X, I'm going to tell you something that our, our my partner on the radio is kind of a, a nut, but he has this Herbal sinus rinse, and really what it is is it's buffered saline, but he put peppermint oil in it, and it is fantastic. Um, It got me off of afrin and flonase and all kinds of stuff, so I'm very impressed with it. Peppermint oil itself does have some anti inflammatory properties, so um, you know it's uh, uh, really good stuff. So you can get that at simplyherbals.net, and it's cheap too. It's not like he could charge 10 bucks for that, and I don't think he charges anything close to that. Mm No, I
2: had another guy text me the other day saying how great. He loves that stuff.
1: Yeah. Best ever, he said. Well, and GVAC loved well, he said his. he fucking uh, amazing. <laughs> GVAC loved his uh, fatigue reprieve, mm-hmm. yeah. and my wife likes the stress less. So it's, yeah. you know, that's all very anecdotal. I would love to do a double-blind placebo-controlled study on some of Dr. Scott's stuff just to see what's there. Right. Um, you know, we obviously in western medicine don 't know everything
2: uh, he's, there's we've got something
1: always learning new things, but the problem with things like these herbal supplements is they don't have to do any studies. they could just put them out and then they finagle it by saying, "Well, this is not intended to treat or diagnose any dis- specific disease, but then it'll say kidney health on it or whatever so uh, I, but I'm, I am confident that Dr. Scott would have some positive results with his stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that we talk to our listeners about is just how do you know things? You know, how would you know if his stress less – like people say, well, does, is it any good? Well, good for what? What do you want to accomplish? Mm-hmm. Do you want to be less fatigued? Well, we could do a study for that because there are validated can, fatigue scores.
2: I was going to say, can you measure it?
1: Yeah. You, well, there are these validated tools that are the best that we – you know, we can't do a blood test for fatigue. Mm-hmm. But we. Uh, it's a subjective um, complaint anyway. So there are um, – instruments that are basically surveys that have been studied and validated and shown to be consistent from one group to another that you could use. So now that's going to be the tool we're going to use. Mm-hmm. And our endpoint, we have to choose an endpoint, right? So our endpoint is going to be we want to see a, um, an improve, a statistically significant improvement in those fatigue scores, it could just be health related quality of life. That could be something else that we could study. There's instruments for studying that. So we'll say, well, maybe we won't get anything on the fatigue, but maybe we'll get something on the health related quality of life. And then you give a hundred people or whatever, you pick an arbitrary number, but it needs to be large enough so if there's a negative result, it's got enough power to to be statistical, so uh, we let's say we get a hundred people. We give a hundred people fatigue reprieve, or um, yeah, fatigue reprieve, and another hundred people we give them a, a placebo that looks and smells and tastes just like it. And we don't know which one is which. They're coded with a code, and that's in a book somewhere that somebody else did. And so we have no idea what we're giving the patient is a placebo or it's active study drug. Mm-hmm. And the patients don't know because um, if the patients know, they may be biased one way or the other. Like if they don't believe in herbal stuff, they're going to be biased against it. Say, oh, hell no, that stuff didn't do anything, even though maybe they would have had an effect if they had been honest about it. I remember I was in um, a double-blind placebo-controlled acne study when I was in college, and um, I went in to get tested, and they do this comedone uh, uh, count where they count the number of basically zits and pre-zits and post-zits on your face in a certain part of your face. And I said, I don't think this stuff's doing anything. I must be getting the placebo. And, and the woman said, oh, well, let me check. And she goes, oh, no, you're getting active drug. And it's like you just screwed she the just whole study. It. She ruined the whole study oh by God. doing that. Okay, She should not have had it. And no one in the study should have had access. That to should that have code. been hermetically sealed in a mayonnaise That's jar. Right, right? That's
2: exactly right. With some semen. Oh, sorry. Oh, oh That was the last show. show.
1: <laughs> Wrong show. But um, uh, so anyway, so the, so no one ne- can know, and that way they can't have a bias. And uh, then at the end, you give them those – whatever these instruments are, health-related quality of life, fatigue, scale, mm-hmm. and um, you have them do a survey. And then once you get all those stacks of paper, now you can decode it and say, well, this one was placebo. This one was – was active drug and you see if there's a statistically significant difference in any any of it any it, it could be uh, post post exercise fatigue there's there is a benefit but not you know early morning fatigue mm-hmm. things like that I mean those things can can dope that right. out and you could say it's statistically significant difference and now once you've done that it needs to be repeated somewhere so you publish your study and let somebody else repeat it to To uh, show that it's reproducible, and if it's reproducible and statistically significant, then you can make a blanket statement that this stuff has some demonstrated efficacy for whatever it is. But you know, choosing your endpoints the big thing. If you choose your endpoint okay for Viagra when they were studying it, not a very good blood pressure medicine. You know, their initial endpoint wasn't erections; it was uh, blood pressure, and it was terrible. And they were you know, maybe even thinking of, of just trashing this drug and moving on to something else. Except that people were like, dang, you know, all of a sudden my erect penis looks like a you know, a Nathan's Frankfurter in the microwave. And um and it's that's not my joke, by the way, but I, I use it every time because it's so great. It's so descriptive of what mm-hmm. a Viagra penis looks like. Ooh. And uh and so then they changed their endpoint and studied uh Viagra uh, so the active ingredient is sildenafil for um, uh, erections, and when you change your endpoint, all of a sudden you might show something different. So you know, Doctor Scott's thing could be the cure for cancer, and we would never know it if we didn't study study for it, you know study it for that. So, yeah. So ahead.
2: what what like there's the CDC for drugs and FDA for food. Who, who can does somebody monitor? They do, this stuff? and uh,
1: Scott could tell terrible? you there is a uh, the FDA still. Monitors this stuff. For, so, for example, uh, every once in a while you'll see a, an herbal medication for erectile dysfunction get pulled from the shelves. And the reason it got pulled from the shelves is because it had sildenafil in it, which is you, the only way you can get that in the United States is with a prescription. Well, they were doing some herbal stuff, and then they crushed up some Viagra and stuck it in there so that you know to improve the efficacy. So people go, yeah, this stuff really works. Right. Well, the FDA will pull these things from the shelves and test them looking for things like mm. that. And, uh, but
2: to put that label on saying, no, then, like, stress no. less, they no, don't say, no, you have to prove it.
1: No, 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 because it's a nutritional supplement and they're, but they have to be careful about the claims they make. Right, And I have seen things getting pulled because their claims were too specific, Mm, you know? So there you go. That's why, you know, Dr. Scott calls it stress less. It doesn't say cures fatigue.
2: Yeah. Energy. Or I mean, or yeah, Yeah. right.
1: Or, uh, you know, decreases, uh, uh, well, he doesn't make any claims at all. Right. You know, but anyway, all right. Very good. Let me see if we've got – oh, so I had this thing. I I want to read this story to you and if I can get back to it. Um, This is from CNN Politics and it says, uh, David Pecker, the head of the company that publishes (laughs) the National Enquirer, was granted immunity in the federal investigation into President Donald Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, in exchange for (laughs) providing information on hush money deals, according to the Wall Street Journal. Pecker, the CEO of American Media Incorporated, told federal prosecutors that Trump had knowledge of Cohen's payments, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So I have this picture of a screenshot from CNN.
2: Did you say Pecker is the head of media or meaty?
1: Mm -hmm. He's the meaty head of media. (laughs) Uh, So this is actually from MSNBC, and it is uh, that woman that says sort of all the time, and I can't think of her name. Um, But says, Trump Worried about Pecker leaking. <laughs> it's just too great. <laughs> <Wait>. <laughs> uh,
2: real life.
1: Yep. <laughs> so, I don't even know if that's if if that's a hmm. um, Photoshop or not, but I could actually, um, absolutely see them saying that. <laughs> There's just too many jokes. Pecker just write leaking. your own joke. I don't have to make a damn joke about this guy's name. It's like. Uh, you know, it's just, why don't you just have your name be Cock, cock. <laughs> I always wanted to um, have a liquor store and call it Cox Liquors. Mm-hmm. You know what? Well, they couldn't say anything. You know, just C O X. Like that's the well, it's a family name, right? Cox Liquors.
2: Liquor. <laughs> that
0: was the head of the urology department where I trained. Oh, is that Doctor right? <laughs> Cox?
1: Is that right?
0: Absolutely. I, we oh, have a dermatologist really...
1: named Rash. <laughs> and there was the retina surgeon named Dr. Blinder. That's Ooh, awesome. Yes. That's cool. <laughs> My doctor when I was a kid was Dr. Cocaine. Hmm. It was spelled C-O-C-A-N-N-E, but it was, it was pronounced cocaine. So, hmm. yeah. All right. Um, let's see. You want to take some medical questions?
2: Uh, sure. One thing.
1: Don't take advice from some asshole on the radio. All right.
3: <clears throat> Hi, Dr. Steve. I'm calling from South Dakota. I am a type 1 diabetic, and I've got gastroparesis. And uh, I was hoping that between yourself and Dr. Scott, maybe you could uh, fill me in on what I can do to uh, lessen the effects of that and hopefully make myself more comfortable instead of uh, being bloated all the time. Yeah
2: okay
1: so he, he has <clears throat> so he has gastroparesis which oh, okay. means that his his stomach is basically paralyzed and uh, you know diabetes causes a lot of nerve problems people hear of diabetic neuropathy uh where people will lose the the you know feeling or they'll get burning and stinging or a heat feeling or electrical discharge kind of in their fingers and feet mm-hmm. and stuff i i've seen people before in the burn unit that had diabetic neuropathy so bad that they felt cold all the time and stuck their foot in uh, or feet in the oven to warm them up, and then end up in the burn unit because they fell asleep and they burned their feet up so it 's a really crap. bad disease, and when it affects the nerves of the stomach, of course, it paralyzes the stomach stomach needs impulses from the nervous system to to you know to uh, massage food and mix it up, and then get it to pump out to the intestine and when it doesn 't do that, yeah, you just feel bloated and you can have reflux and puke and stuff like that. So um, you got any experience with this? Because I, I, we could talk about the medication, but the, no. now there's a surgical procedure for
0: this. Yeah, my experience is pretty limited from back when I was a student and a resident when yep. they were doing uh, double-blind placebo studies <laughs> on uh, <laughs> some new drugs that got pulled. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible disease. So what was and, the name of
1: that one? It was, um, oh, geez. Um, I it's can't
0: It's right remember. on the tip of my tongue. It I've was a great drug,
1: now. too. Uh, prokinetic, let me look it up um, drug uh, removed let 's see if it comes up Sisapride. that yes. was it sysapri
2: that's yeah it was uh, that 's what I was going to say <laughs>
1: okay so sysapride <laughs> was one that worked really well, but there were some adverse effects and it got removed from the market uh, It worked on serotonin receptors in the stomach. And it uh, was primarily used to improve muscle tone in the lower esophageal sphincter, which is, our listeners know what that is, the uh, little uh, ring of muscle between the esophagus and the stomach where, uh, that tries to prevent <coughs> reflux. In other words, uh, food getting from the stomach back up into the esophagus. And uh, people were getting irregular heartbeats from it, and it was removed from the market. So there's some other medications. Um, there, uh, there's one called uh, urocholine bethanacol, and we would use that sometimes for people that had um, uh, post-delivery uh, ileus, which is a paralysis of the bowel where it just sits there and it's flaccid. And it doesn't contract like it's supposed to, so people blow it up and they don't have bowel movements. Um, it's supposed to empty, help the stomach empty faster. And then there's the classic one that we all use is metaclopramide. Metaclopramide is... Um, uh, a a drug that helps improve peristaltic function in the GI tract all the way through. So, um, but if I'm assuming if you're calling, you've tried all of these things and if you have, and that doesn't work uh, then it's still a real problem. So there is this thing called a gastric pacemaker. You guys ever put one of those in?
0: Uh, I've had patients that have had them in, but I don't think anyone in our area is implanting them.
1: Okay. So uh, what this does is it's an electrical stimulator, like a pacemaker for the heart. And remember, nervous uh, 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 or ner- signals from the nervous system are basically electrical signals, right? And uh, uh, you, if you put a pacemaker on the stomach. Um, you can actually stimulate it to now contract, whereas before it wouldn't contract. And I don't know how these things work if they're programmed to only start contracting after the stomach has distended or any of that. So I know nothing about it. So maybe somebody that knows something about it can call in. That would be the way I would design one with a stretch receptor on it. So when food goes into the stomach, it starts to stimulate gently in one direction from the – you know, from the uh, body of the stomach to the antrum and I think and all there's that a stuff.
0: way they can activate it once they've eaten or start to Oh, eat? is that what so it, it is? Yeah. Some of them will have, well, some of them will have like you can, some pacemakers you can put a magnet on them and that gives okay. it a signal. I don't, I'm not sure how they do that.
1: Well, they, okay, so I'm looking at this article here. It says the electrical stimulation involves attaching two insulated wires to the lower body or the antrum of the stomach. The uh, electrodes attach to the neurostimulator that is placed in a subcutaneous pouch on the abdominal wall. So, like a pacemaker, you know, they insert this little pouch under the skin, and you've got this little place there. It says the, uh, um, it can be programmed to enhance the frequency of gastric contractions, and the mild electrical stimulation of the antrum portion of the stomach muscle wall helps to reduce nausea and vomiting. Wow. Well, that's pretty damn cool. So, that's what I would go for if I had this and everything else had failed. So... So talk to your uh, gastroenterologist or your uh, gastric surgeon about consideration of gastric electrical stimulation if everything else has failed. You got anything else to add to that? No, sir. Okay. All right.
3: Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot Hey, Dr. Steve. It's Brian from New Hampshire.
4: Hey, Again.
0: man. I got um, a set joint arthritis. And my doctor left. And my new doctor automatically, first thing he says, he wants to take some of my pain meds away. And I barely get enough to work or anything. And I'm on 50 microgram an hour Fentanyl and three fives a day. My other doctor said I was just under what the government was requesting, whatever words. And the new doctor says I'm over. It. I'm over it.
1: Oh, I know. What's I don't know going how to on. do
0: that math or what it equals to. On, uh, I have no memory anymore. Well,
1: that's okay. I can help you with that. So he's on transdermal fentanyl, fifty micrograms an hour patch. And that's equivalent – and this is the equivalence we use, and I would be interested in hearing your thoughts on this, uh, that um, um, one microgram an hour is equivalent to two milligrams per day of morphine. So so if he's on a 50-microgram patch that would an hour, that would be equivalent to 100 milligrams of oral morphine or 10 Lortab-10s. I always – when we talk to lay people, we always convert to Lortab 10 equivalents because that always makes sense. If I say you're on 875 oral morphine equivalents, nobody knows what the hell I'm talking about. But if I say you're on 87 and a half Lortab 10s, they go, oh, God. You know, that makes That's something they can relate to. Yeah, We use morphine equ- equivalents in anesthesia, sure. so yep. uh, would, would, that's our. Would you agree that 25 or 50 mics – per hour would be roughly equivalent to hundred milligrams of morphine a day. Is, uh, that, is that about what the conversion yeah. that you use? Okay. So, so that's hundred. And then he's on five milligrams of oxycodone three times a day. That's what those perk fives are. That's the, the active drug is oxycodone and acetaminophen. We'll forget about the Tylenol and concentrate on the oxycodone. So uh, five milligrams of oxycodone is equivalent to seven and a half milligrams of uh, morphine. So let's figure i I can't do that in my head uh, alexa, what's seven point five times three i'm just twenty three thank you. twenty two point five right yeah uh oh
2: she,
4: she seven point right. five multiplied by three hundred twenty two point five <laughs> equals two thousand four
1: hundred it's twenty two point five right we don't yeah. have to ask her that okay so um uh so twenty two point five plus a hundred is a hundred and twenty two point five Oral morphine equivalent.
4: Seven point five multiplied by three hundred twenty.
1: All right. So um, she's hilarious. Uh, So most states have a threshold of one hundred twenty milligrams. If they have guidelines at all, they're going to have a threshold of one hundred twenty milligrams of uh, oral morphine equivalents for doing things like referring somebody to a pain, a, a board certified pain specialist. And uh, there are other um, uh, things that you have to do. Like in Tennessee, if you're on 120 oral morphine equivalents and you're on a benzodiazepine, which is, you know, tranquilizers like Valium, um, Xanax. Xanax, and um, uh, Ativan. Well, I don't want to drink after you. You're, you're gross. <clears throat> um, I don't know what's been in your mouth today. So. You don't want to know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dr. X raises his hand. <laughs> It's a good move on the radio. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, so uh, uh, if they're on benzodiazepines, they also have to be referred to mental health specialist if they're on greater than 120 oral morphine equivalents. So he's right on the borderline uh, of, of that. Well, he's actually technically over it. So that's what his doctor is telling him. The CDC has its own guidelines, and they say go easy over 90 milligrams. And so we've got a lot of doctors – but they don't say don't write 90 milligrams more. They just say that should be your target. But if you have to go over that, just document why you had to go over that. A lot of doctors have taken that as to be a hard stop. And 90 morphine equivalence is not a whole lot for people that are on long-acting and short-acting. In other words, people who have chronic non-malignant pain that requires uh, round-the-clock dosing. Those people will often be on what he's – things like he's on, you know, 120 milligram of oral morphine equivalents or more. And so they all run afoul of the CDC guidelines if their doctor all of a sudden says, well, I'm not going to write more than 90. You know, particularly cancer patients need – many of them need much more than that. I've got people on – well, I think the most I've ever had was 7,000 oral morphine equivalents a day. This was a person that um, had such horrible, horrible pain. And I can tell this isn't a HIPAA violation because it's not identifiable. Uh, and it's for educational purposes. Let's just say it's a, it doesn't matter why they had their pain, but it was so horrible that somebody else had put them on a uh, a Dilaudid, uh, uh you know, hydromorphone PCA pump at, at 14 milligrams an hour. And they were breathing? Yeah, they were totally, because they, they hadn't got there overnight. You know, they'd gotten there, started at, you know, 0. 0.4 milligrams an hour and then went to one milligram, then two, then four, and then eight. And um, so 14 milligrams an hour. Let's let Alexa help us with this. Alexa, what's 14 times 24?
4: 14 multiplied by 24 equals 336.
1: So that's 336 milligrams of, of IV diluted per day. So what? Wait, I just said the number. What'd she say? Three twenty-four. Yeah, what she said, Alexa. What's three hundred twenty-four times thirty? Three
4: hundred twenty-four multiplied by thirty equals nine thousand seven hundred twenty.
1: Alexa, what's nine thousand seven hundred twenty divided by one point five?
4: Nine thousand seven hundred twenty divided by one point five equals six thousand four hundred eighty.
1: Okay, so it's six thousand four hundred eighty. Milligrams of oral morphine a day or 640 something Lortab 10s a day. And that's, I think that's my record. And so that's very, very unusual. Uh, patients like that, um, we can convert them to methadone, and methadone is so potent that you can get them down to like 30 milligrams three times a day sometimes. But uh, we would do that first line for people. Methadone's a wonderful drug for pain. Uh, but it carries the uh, black box warning that it can cause a thing called prolonged QT syndrome, which is just don't worry about what that is if you're listening to this. Uh, but it's a change on the electrocardiogram, but it predisposes you to a, an arrhythmia called torsade de pointes, which is uh, you know it can be a pulseless rhythm sometimes and uh, can uh, cause fatality. So uh, I, I did some research on that and found of five million people that were treated with methadone at high doses, only five had torsade de poids. So, and not all of those died from it. So it's one in a million. Those are pretty good odds. If I gave you those odds, you'd, you'd go to Vegas and bet everything on red, you know, but, but anyway, so, uh, so yeah, so that's the issue. So here this guy is either going to have to find somebody that's more comfortable writing pain medication. That would be a board certified pain management specialist. And uh, uh, but that's harder and harder to do these days because people are terrified to write opioids, you know. And when I say people, I mean healthcare providers who are writing legal prescriptions for them. The dealers on the street have no problem, mm-hmm. have no problem with it. And one thing, Dr. X, and you may be aware of this, since 2010, the number of prescriptions for pain medication in this country has fallen precipitously, and if you go to drsteve.com, scroll down and look at a, for an article called An Interesting Take on the Opioid Crisis, um, uh, you can see the number of scripts declining very fast, almost as fast as they went up for the years preceding that. But the, uh, the rate of opioid overdose is uh, increasing geometrically. And, and I'm talking about deaths from opioid overdose. So you may say, well, how in the hell is that possible? And I'm sure you've got some ideas why that would be. Let me just throw that out and see see how smart you are.
0: <laughs> Not very, but uh, a lot of it they're getting uh, getting street drugs. They're of getting course. stuff in from China. Give and... yourself a bill. Of course, that's what it is. And yeah. those
1: little white packets with Chinese fentanyl in them don't have the microgram amounts on them. And, you know, something might get stepped on. Aka, you know, cut with with an inert ingredient could get stepped on twice, or it might get stepped on five times, and the one that's been stepped on five times is going to be less potent. And if you're used to that, and then your supplier gets something that's got been adulterated less than that, you're just shooting up the same amount of powder, but it could be five times more potent. Yeah, and fentanyl's scary because it's you dosed in microgram amounts. Yeah,
0: I tell people all the time in my practice, you know, that they'll be afraid of. Uh, overdosing on me, overdosing them on drugs. And so sure. uh, overdose drugs are not inherently dangerous. They're not going to kill you. They just make you stop breathing. As long as I'm around to breathe for you, right. you're going to be fine. Right. All those heroin addicts back in the 60s would not have died had they had someone to breathe for them. That's the, right. The medicine would have gone away and they'd have been fine. But, uh, And that's where the home uh, naloxone, which you mentioned, uh,
1: Give yourself a bill. I was hoping you'd bring
0: that up. It yeah. uh, comes into play. Of course, I often wonder who's going to administer it. Uh,
1: well, it's usually going to be their buddy that they're shooting up with. Yeah. Um, so, but a lot of times they'll know that something's If they're going still on. conscious. Yeah, if they're still conscious. Yeah, if they're both unconscious, then that's a problem. But, uh, yeah, so what uh, Dr. X is talking about is home naloxone therapy. Uh, A lot of – like CVS in some areas will just give it to you. You don't even have to have a prescription. It's not a controlled substance and it will successfully reverse uh, narcotic overdose pretty much 100 percent of the time. But it's short-lived. So uh, what you want to do is have this in your house and then you can go to – I think it's Narcan.com. Is it? or getnarcan.com. Let me see. Let me look it up because I want everybody who's listening to this to go to this and uh, and learn about this because, you know, you need to learn CPR. Um, okay, let me see. This is a, now, okay, getnarcan.com isn't it. Let's see if it's getnaloxone. Get na, org. Okay, <laughs> here we go. Okay, now I got it. It is, okay, go to uh, www. Uh, dot get naloxone, that's N-A-L-O-X-O-N-E, org And just read this. Uh, it's just like learning CPR. You know, you're seeing someone that's having an overdose and you're going to save their life. But when they wake, at, so you give the stuff and then you call 911 immediately because if they've really overdosed, I've seen this before, where someone um, has so much in their system That you give the the Narcan and they wake up and they're fine and they go right back under again. And uh, 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 I've seen patients that required a Narcan drip before, you know, where we had to set up a constant infusion of Narcan to keep them alive while this stuff got out of their system. So you give it and you call 911 and you save somebody's life. The same way you learn how to do CPR on somebody, you can save their life.
2: So is so. it a needle you shoot it?
1: They you or can How do you do it? Okay, it's excellent they're question. It's a passed out, right? right? It's a nasal spray. there's a nasal spray. Oh, okay. And uh if your insurance won't cover it or if it's too expensive, they can give you pre-filled syringes of Narcan that you can just you know shoot them up with it. Um, uh, you just pop it under the skin. Oh, okay. uh, you can. I've also seen where they have syringes of Narcan and they give you a little nasal sp- uh, speculum and you stick that in there and just shoot it in their nose that way.
2: Well, you know, like Pulp Fiction when they...
1: <laughs> that was such bullshit.
2: So that, that's all I can think <laughs> of. So that's not real?
1: No. Um, it's uh, on TV. No, taking a giant needle full of adrenaline and then as hard as you can jamming it into somebody's chest wall... And injecting it directly into their heart is not a way to treat a heroin overdose. Now, a cardiac arrest, we have done that mm-hmm. in the past. I've got a, uh, you know, you run codes all the time. When's the last time you did an intracardiac, uh, you know, injection, or you know, you might have done a pericardial decades ago. Yeah, we just really don't do it anymore. There's no need no. for it. It's never been shown to be better than doing it the the good old fashioned way. Plus, we
0: usually have IV access, so right. Yeah, and you got to know where you're sticking.
1: Oh yeah, You can't just stick it anywhere. You got on John the task, Travolta. Uh, he's just you know he's yeah. going boom. I mean, it was just uh, like it was even harder than a pericardial thump. I mean, they were just jamming this needle. Now that in. I've done recently, yeah, I have. Uh, have you? Yes. yes. I when I was an intern. We were doing pericardial thump while we were waiting for the pacemaker to get there, and you could thump this person in there, and you would see this electrical discharge, and you would get a pulse with it. Yeah. And as long as we were doing that, they were okay until they could get the external pacemaker on this person. It's crazy.
2: (laughs) So you're beating the life into somebody.
1: Well, and the the amount of force that you use is really just how how much gravity would pull your hand down. Oh, okay. But um, just that... um, that uh, percussion on the chest walls enough in some people to, uh, stimulate, uh, electrical activity in the heart. That's cool. Hmm. Um, have you ever done a diving reflex? You're probably not old enough to have done that. I'm not that old. Yeah. See, I'm quite a bit older than you are. <laughs> um, when I was in training, we had, um, a, a, a case where somebody had atrial, uh, a paroxysmal atrial flutter. And this was before the, uh, days, or, 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 or did he have an SVT? I can't remember. But it was before the days of um, um, uh, denison and stuff like that. So uh, we just decided we were going to do a diving reflex on this guy. We were interns, and you were running the, the show. So what, What's that? Well, I'm going to tell you. So what we did was we took a bucket of ice water and we shoved his head in it. Oh,
2: my God. And,
1: and uh, within 30 seconds, his arrhythmia completely resolved, and he was back in a sinus rhythm again. We were like, damn. But uh, apparently all mammals have a diving reflex, and that's how whales and um, um, uh, and other um Uh, dolphins and stuff you know mammals that live in the ocean can survive is when they dive their metabolism starts to decrease their heart rate slows down and they can stay down there for all these you know it's not just great lungs and great circulatory systems Hmm. and uh, they're all derived from land animals and so for some dang reason all mammals have this and uh, we never use it but i used it that day this is interesting
2: Hmm. That's crazy. Real <laughs>
1: diving reef. We used to do some damn shit. I remember How do
2: you coat, you know?
1: I remember one of my senior charge. residents You didn't. It's yeah, yeah. No, we didn't charge. It's for
2: $2 that. for a bucket of ice. <laughs>
1: we, <laughs> right, and $5,000 for knowing what to do with exactly. it. Exactly. Um, I remember my uh senior resident at Chapel Hill uh getting a C-arm um, X-ray machine and um and he got a a, a um, big syringe full of dye and he was injecting into this person's um, uh, uh, sub su- how was he doing this he was. Oh, oh, oh okay no i remember what it was this person had a uh, subclavicular central line right and so he was injecting dye in, and then going shoot shoot and then having the x-ray person take a shot and what he was trying to do was get a pulmonary angiogram <laughs> and he was doing it up in the icu just because he thought he could do that didn't work too well, did no, it? No, it didn't work very well, and he—I'm pretty sure this was the beginning of the end of residents just getting to do stuff that they wanted to do. Back then, we used to plate our own uh, urine, um, uh, urine cultures, and we yeah. would read them, and then we would report it into the chart. It never went to the lab. You know, and then yeah. we would treat based on that. And I remember uh, the first time it happened in 1986 when I was an intern in the emergency room, and I wanted to do a wet prep of my own. And they said, no, no, you have to send that to the lab now. And so I sent it to the lab, and it came back normal. And I called up the lab, and I said, if you saw clue cells, I'm just asking, if you saw them, would you report it? And clue cells are – um, uh, an indicator of bacterial vaginosis. They're just white blood cells, or are, are, you know, no, not white blood cells. They're just regular uh, vaginal cells that have bacteria all over them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and you can see them. And I said, if if you saw clue cells, would you report it? And they said, oh yeah, 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 we would. And then two minutes later, we get an amended report says so three plus clue cells. I was so fucking pissed because it was like if I had done it myself, I would have seen it, and I, I, I you know, I would have gone ahead and treated this person already, but instead I had to send it to somebody who was less skilled at it than I was. And then I had to call them on the phone just to get the right report back when, you know, and I was not allowed to use a microscope in the emergency room anymore. So, you know, for us old school people, that was a real kind of step backwards. But, but anyway, you know, what was great though? Um, if we're talking about the old days, And I don't have any old-school music, uh, like, from the 40s to play. Let me find... Alexa, play swing music.
4: Here's a station for swing music, swing jazz, on Amazon Music.
1: Let's see. Come on, Alexa. Alexa, next song. Hmm. This is not going to be worth it. There we go. Ah. So, back in my training... um, (laughs) I, um, now I totally forgot what I was going to say. After all. <laughs>
2: Old school stuff, who knows?
1: Oh, yeah. We used to calculate our own um, uh, aminoglycoside dosing. And we used to use this thing called a cerubigram. The guy that developed, so for the people who don't know out there, there's a, a class of drugs called aminoglycosides, and there were tobramycin and genomycin, the two most well-known and uh, they're great for sterilizing a urinary tract and some other stuff like that and using for with other drugs. The the problem that they had was that they would kill people's kidneys and their in their inner ears. And so they would have kidney failure and um, they'd be go dizzy. Uh, or go deaf, yeah. And they'd go deaf as well. So they'd be dizzy, deaf, and have, be on dialysis. Like lady diagnosis. There <laughs> you <Yeah>, So <laughs> – so, um, they would, uh, so they worked. Did a lot of research to try to figure out a way. How can we dose this stuff? And this guy Felix Cerubi, out of actually from Chapel Hill, uh, figured out a nomogram for correlating creatinine clearance with aminoglycoside dose. So, in other words, how how well your kidneys could could filter something out. That's uh, how you would dose this stuff. So if you're Kidneys were worse at filtering things out. You would give them less. You might give one dose every 24 hours, and uh, so we would calculate these things with these cerubigrams grams. And then that guy actually went to East Tennessee uh, East Tennessee State University. Believe it or not, he's were if they gave out Nobel prizes for saving people's renal function, uh, he would have gotten one. You know, but they don't do that. Um, I uh, And he ended up somehow at, ETS, at East Tennessee State University. It was a little place in Upper East Tennessee, and uh, he, that's where he finished out his career. Well, anyway, uh, I remember the first time that I was told I couldn't dose my own aminoglycoside. I was really proud of this, uh, this thing, and I've never hurt anybody's kidneys. And the pharmacist said, oh, no, we do that. And then – it turned out they were using the same formulas. They were using the exact same thing. You know, they were using cerubigrams <laughs> too, but they had to do it now because uh, they didn't trust us to, to do it. And I guess a lot of doctors who didn't go to Chapel Hill didn't get th- thrown, you know, cerubis, nomograms down their throat. But uh, now it's like the greatest thing in the world. You just write pharmacy to dose <laughs> and genomycin. So I'm used a to it. a lot easier. It's so much easier. And then now if they F it up, it's on them. So, yeah. So anyway. All right, enough of the old days, Alexa. Stop. Let's take another call.
3: Hi, Doctor Steve. Hi, Doctor Scott. Uh, lady wow. die. Well, um, I'm wondering how long sperm can live when wiped up with a towel. You no, know, can live for like five days when you pump it inside your lady. But That's what exactly about right. when it's you like? What about if you like jerk off into like a paper towel and then you toss it in the trash can? Hmm. Okay,
1: somebody's gotten a paternity why. suit. Oh. Well,
2: that's
1: got to be what it is. I mean, why else would you care? He's worried that someone's going to pick that jizz rag out and then, you know, somehow shove it into their vagina and get pregnant, and, and he's got no control over it. Number one, how about flushing it? Don't throw it down the trash. I mean, you know, if it's, if it's tissues, mm. as so many people use, Sox. if you're really worried about it. Yeah, and if it's a sock, throw it in the, in the washing machine. The, uh, sperm can live up to five days in the uterus, swimming around looking for an egg to fertilize. And uh, outside the body, it just depends. Now, uh, people have tried to claim that they got pregnant in a hot tub. Not possible. Um, sperm would die almost immediately because of the temperature and the chlorine. And exposure to just plain water. Now, in saline, they can last for quite a while. Um, And in a sperm uh, collection cup, they can last for quite a while because um, I I did a motility study. And uh, when my wife was trying to get pregnant, because you got to first figure out if it's the dude, right? If I was shooting blanks, there wouldn't be any point putting her through a, a big long workup. And uh, so I took a cup into um, the bathroom at the hospital and I masturbated to completion and then took this cup in. <laughs> and they probably, uh, it was about an hour before they looked at it and they, you know, there was still motile sperm in there because it was still liquid. They hadn't dried out, but in a towel and it dries out, and it's minutes. You're talking minutes. Hmm. I agree. There okay. you go. Thank
2: you. I think that's correct, Dr. Steve. Oh, <laughs>
0: Which restroom was that? Because I don't want to use that one. Yeah, it was the one <laughs> next to the doctor's
1: lounge. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and that one that I found went in the
2: bathroom and did it.
1: Well, where, where else am I going to go? Don't
2: they have stalls?
1: No. Oh, not, okay. Not at the lab at the hospital. Yeah, here's your <laughs> masturbation <laughs> stall. Here's the masturbatorium. No, you just got to go in the bathroom. <laughs> I found out later that the lock on that bathroom doesn't work oh. because I was sitting in there, you know, uh, defecating one day. And I know I locked it and somebody hit the, the handle to come in and it just popped the lock open and they just, you know, walked in. They're like, oh, excuse me. Can you imagine if that had happened while I was trying to get this sperm sample? <laughs> we would all have heard of it. How would I explain that? Well, I would have to explain it as I was going a sperm sample and here's my collection thing. But, mm-hmm. yeah, everybody would have heard of that. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, my other story, you probably haven't heard this one. It's um, a good in-the-hospital-bathroom story. So I came back from um, a trip out of the country, or out of the 48, you know, the Continental 48, and came back with a raging case of terista and we were worried that it might have been giardia because I did get exposed to fresh water while I was there. Um, And uh, so they wanted a stool sample. So I go into the... To the bathroom on the floor, and you know I'm sitting there, and I'm got this little cup, and you just kind of got to <laughs> position it just right, and make sure that you don't overfill it because then it's just a mess. And I just got just enough in there, and I, like an idiot, okay, Smarty always, pants, always, <laughs> always put the lid on everything. Right after when, when you're done with it. But I set it up on the side of the sink, Mm -hmm. which is porcelain Mm. and slippery. And I'm going to pull up my pants after sort of cleaning myself up. And you know how when your pants are down below your knees, it's sort of like a bowl, right? And as I'm pulling my pants up, no clue how this happened. That thing just slipped off of the, off of the sink and dumped (laughs) right into my pants. So into the bowl, right? And what you uh, what can you do about it? You, you you sop it up the best you can with <laughs> tissues and stuff, and scrape it up, but you can't get all of it. And there and and now when I pull up my pants, it's cold.
2: And you can't leave without your pants. Is that on? why they called it
1: street? <laughs> <laughs> it's cold. <laughs> And liquidy, Ooh. and I'm pulling up my pants, and uh, I've just got this huge shit stain on the back of my pants. And back then, I carried a clipboard. So I walked down the hall, <laughs> just sort of real tiny little steps, holding my clipboard over my, my rear end, and had to take towels and put it down in my car so I could go home and change, take a shower and change clothes. And I just threw, those, threw pants those pants away. away. Oh, I just <laughs> threw them away. <laughs> I guess in retrospect, I was so mad. But in retrospect, and I was late for rounds and the whole thing, you know. Uh, but I, um, in retrospect, I could have thrown those pants in the washing machine and mm-hmm. washed them and then take them to the dry cleaners. But I, I just I never want to see these pants again. And I threw them away. <laughs> so, so. <bad. laughs> so anyway. <laughs> All right. Um, we have about two minutes left. Let me see if I can answer one of these really quick. well hello
2: hmm I got no source. Hey, dr.
0: Steve this is Jason in Texas got a question about uh, a bladder infection I had one a while back and know it was so severe that I couldn't urinate for oh like almost 14 hours and ended up going to the emergency room and getting a catheter uh, and then after that, you know, uh, they put me on antibiotics and it cleared up. Uh, I'm starting to have those symptoms again. Uh,
1: any any thoughts on, on where the... Yeah, yeah, um, we're running out of time. That's not a normal urinary tract infection when you can't urinate to the point where you need a catheter. That's usually a sign of a prostate infection and uh, where the prostate is enlarged to the point where it's just cutting off flow from the bladder. So uh, he needs to see a urologist the The other thing that could do this though there's two things that can cause you an inability to pee, and one is a urethral stricture, and the other one is uh, uh, you know a, 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 a an enlarged prostate, you know I guess a neurogenic bladder or something like that, but that 's not what we 're really talking about here. He had a bladder outflow obstruction, so he needs to see a urologist get that checked there's uh, some something going on with his prostate or he has a stricture in the urethra. If I was a betting person, it would be the prostate. Me too. I'd bet on the prostate. Yeah. Yeah. So a urologist is going to be in the best position to treat that, in my opinion. Um, Thanks always go to uh, Lady Diagnosis and Dr. X. Listen to our SiriusXM show on the Faction Talk channel, SiriusXM channel 103, Saturdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, Sunday at 5 p.m. Eastern, on demand, and other times at Don Wickland's pleasure. Many thanks to our listeners. And uh, go to our website at drsteve.com for schedules and podcasts and other crap. Until next time, check your stupid nuts for lumps, quit smoking, get off your asses and get some exercise. We'll see you in one week for the next edition of Weird Medicine.